1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Truth and Movies. Today, we're back from Cannes and talking about Han in Solo, A Star Wars Story. But is Alden Ehrenreich the Ehrenreich man for the role? Then we set sail for 18th century Latin America for Lucretia Martel's hypnotic anti-imperialist fever dream Zama. There's no film club this week, but expect plenty of film chat in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, we're back. It's Michael Leader here, sitting across from Adam Woodward. Hello. And Hannah Woodhead. Hi. How's it going, Hannah? It's yeah, been a good. while.
1: It has, yeah, it's nice to be back on the airwaves.
2: And Adam, have you readjusted to the UK climate? I think almost.
0: I'm just uh, not back into my normal routine just yet. I think once I start seeing more movies over here, then mm-hmm. I'll, uh, I'll, be, I'll be fine. But yeah, I'm think, happy to be
2: back. I think the best tonic for post Can Blues is to see and talk about as many films as possible. I think so. Shall we crack on with solo? <laughs> So this is a portrait of the scoundrel as a young man, following from his days as a rongan on the streets of Corellia, right through to his first phrase in space smuggling. Along the way, he meets friends and foes, both new and old, including his first encounter with the fine fettled frenemy, Lando Calrissian. You see, how'd you guys let me beat you on that one? Come on. There's no liars in this game, just players. The seat taken?
0: Nobody's in the seat, then I ain't taken friends.
1: So, this is Sabak? Uh, Sabak. Sabak. Got it. you played before? A couple times, yeah.
2: Captain Lindo Calrissian, Han Solo. Looks like you're uh, having a good day. Mm-hmm. I'm a lucky guy. Can I ask you a question,
0: Captain Calrissian?
2: Anything, Han? It's Han, but
0: that's okay. I heard a uh, story about you, I was wondering if it's true.
2: Everything you've heard about me is true. So that's Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo and Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian. So, Hannah, you saw this last night. This is very fresh in your mind. How is it settling with you?
1: (sighs) You know, we were doing so well. We'd had three great Star Wars sort of reboots Mm -hmm. and then, you know, ever since this was announced, it's kind of been um, troubled, I think is the word, And I went along last night kind of expecting... You know, I managed my expectations having seen the reaction out of Cannes and having heard all the rumours about the film, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of been in crisis... It's fine. It's fine. It's, you know, but I don't want to go to a Star Wars movie and just come out of it thinking it's fine.
2: Well, this so. is the first one of these Star Wars movies that has almost a, an anti-hype production story behind it where they had Phil Lord and Chris Miller from the Jump Street movies, Lego movie, Cloud the Chance of Meatballs, with very strong comic voices uh, directing and writing this film and they were kicked off... Mid-shoot, right?
1: Yeah, just as principal photography was finishing, mm-hmm. I think, and uh, Ron Howard came in to replace them.
2: Replaced with no-one's favourite filmmaker, Ron Howard, is that fair to yeah. say? <laughs> Would you agree, Adam?
0: I think Ron Howard often doesn't get the, the credit he's due, and in this film particularly, I'm not sure he could have salvaged much from the screenplay, which mm-hmm. is done by uh, Lawrence Kasdan, Star Wars mm-hmm. veteran, and his son. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a fairly uninspired screenplay, I think. I mean, there were rumors that the Lord and Miller version was maybe more humorous and there was a there was a kind of debate about whether their artistic vision clashed with Kathleen Kennedy at Lucasfilm and with the cast dance, you know, writing the screenplay as well, I think. But yeah, it's sort of never really recovers from that point.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, Lawrence Kasdan is now asserting himself as one of the main creative voices in that void that's been left by George Lucas. He wrote the co-wrote screenplay for Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, and now is back, and he's seen almost as the man who gave Han Solo his voice in those later films and is in this one. It seems that they've... We don't want to approach any spoiler territory, but it seems that they go through those original movies, you know, New Hope, right on through, and... Almost write up a bullet point list of everything we know about Han Solo, and now we need to show in this movie how that happened. Or we need to call it out, or we need to hint and hint and reference it in some way.
0: That's right. We're getting to this point where you know lines of dialogue from the original tri- original trilogy and little asides uh, are now being fleshed out into entire plot points. And mm-hmm. here, you know, the the, the fated Kessel Run story, which I think is so much more wondrous and magical when it's left in the minds of the audience. Mm-hmm. Here they sort of unpack it in a very direct and quite dry way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it forms one of the the major kind of set piece anchors of the film. And yeah, I just think there's something very lazy about doing that. I'd like to see them build on Han's legacy and, and mythology in a way which felt fresh and they were adding new ideas and, and, and telling us stories we didn't already know.
2: Yeah, I think in your review you referenced it as a, as a colouring in exercise and that's really what it feels like. There are very much defined boundaries around this story. Even though this whole Star Wars story offshoot, there's this one in Rogue One, there were supposed to be opportunities and attempts at exploring new areas of the Star Wars universe. This one feels like a much smaller universe. Does this rank favourably alongside Rogue One, Hannah? How do you think?
1: I thought Rogue One was great. I think there wasn't a lot of hype around Rogue One. Mm. I think it felt a bit quieter, especially coming after Force Awakens. But I was really pleasantly surprised by it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant movie. Mm. And it did that great thing of telling us a story in the Star Wars universe that we didn't know, whereas this is just we know it all and mm. there's no surprises. And it's asking you to invest in a story which isn't that interesting and characters who, apart with the exception of Han, Chewie and um, Nando... Mm. You're just not interested. Um, the love interest played by Amelia Clarke, because you know the great love story in Star Wars is Han and Leia, and I was sat there, I, I can't buy into this. This is just, we know it's not going yeah. to last. And we'd already seen a Star Wars heist movie in Rogue One. So I looked to Star Wars for something new, and I didn't get that at all. And it was, yeah, it all felt very... Here's some things that we told you in the original trilogy, and we're going to just go back and revisit those. It's, exactly, yeah, I was groaning a lot at like the you know the kind of throwbacks and the oh oh that's that's what they meant you know forty years ago and yeah.
2: We shouldn't really shout them out directly, but uh, it reminded me very much of the um, probably the worst X Men movie, X Men Origins Wolverine, <laughs> where they decide to make a distinct in the plot how Wolverine got his leather jacket that he's wearing in the first X-Men movie and it's it's sometimes that specific and that almost ephemeral that they feel uh, this needs to have time in their big blockbuster of, of the spring.
1: And there's one moment quite late on which I think is going to be the big kind of reveal to oh, a lot of people and I lost it at that point I was just <laughs> like it does feel like lip service it feels like we have to find a way to tie this film into all the other films mm-hmm. instead of just kind of letting it breathe. The end of Rogue One, we kind of got that with the cameo from Leia. But this is just like cameos on cameos. and
2: Exactly, yeah. It it's starts to feel, this is the first one of these movies. You know, The Last Jedi I really liked. I remember we t- spoke about it on this podcast. And it was thoughtful, radical, experimental within the format and formula of Star Wars. This film is the first one that feels quite like product really but also a bit old-fashioned compared to you know the two marvel movies we've had out this year the way it balances fan service with giving something new it was so um, odd to see star wars being like that as a person who grew up with these movies and i can't deny that once a john williams fanfare comes in on the soundtrack the you know the, the hairs on my arms stand up on end and i'm Programmed to pick up on all these references, but it just feels forced this time out. But let's talk about the the new stuff in here. So Alden Ehrenreich is the first time they've recast one of the iconic roles. How does he fare compared to Han Solo, Adam?
0: I actually think he's he's the best thing in the film. Maybe not MVP because I'm not sure anyone really deserved to take that mantle. But he is very good. I think he's not trying to just do an impersonation of Harrison Ford. He brings his own charm to it. By contrast, I thought Donald Glover mm. playing Lando Calrissian was a little bit of a letdown. I'm not sure that he could have made much more from the script. He's given some pretty bad exposition-y lines of dialogue to play with. But compared to Billy Dee Williams in the originals, who just kind of rocks in and he's this instantly cool, I mean, probably even cooler than Han Solo, mm comes in and you don't really need to know much about him he, he's just he's just there he's his presence in the movie and i think in yeah in this one donald glover despite the the love for him at the moment i, I think he's he's he really lets himself down here
2: well he's he's certainly in his music and his t v work with atlanta and his and his you know charles Gambino sort of guys. He owns the internet right now. Mm. And it's so strange to see these pop cultural artefacts that he's putting out that he wholly owns and wholly manages the messages behind. And now he's here just as a two or three scene, kind of very mannered, exhibition heavy, not really sure what the character's serving, sort of cameo. How did he land for you, uh, Hannah?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely adore Donald Glover Mm -hmm. as a person and as an artist. I think he makes really interesting choices and he's very talented. But this, for me, felt very one for the fans kind mm-hmm. of and also there's a, they don't really do enough with the Han and Lando relationship for me it's all just like Han getting one over on Lando mm-hmm. which isn't particularly interesting to me and yeah i i felt quite sorry for the whole cast apart from um Amelia Clark and Alden Ehrenreich because they're just given very little to do particularly for me the mvp is Sir Phoebe Waller-Bridge who yeah. has like you know, no screen time. I mean, she's already a droid, so she's not getting screen time. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I thought she was great as this kind of rebellious droid. But So she plays
0: the droid who
2: is owned by Lando. Wando. She's an mm. L337, which is Leet. Oh, God. <laughs> if you didn't get that. Yeah,
0: and what, what that is, yeah. I mean, there's a sort of weird pseudo-love... <laughs> interest mm-hmm. angle to it as well but it's this like feminist pro-droid rights character sort of like the Dobby
2: of Star Wars oh. <laughs> I,
0: I would say yeah it, on a par with like Jar Jar Binks in terms of like
1: that's hard. you just
0: want to s- punch it in the face
2: but that, I think that speaks to the heart of this conflict between the two versions of Star Wars that we're seeing melded into one she comes across Sort of rhythmically and in the sense of humor, like she's out coming out of a Phil and Chris Miller version of this film rather than a Ron Howard one, which is much more about barreling forward, never letting up, uh, delivering spectacle on spectacle and more and more thrills, which is actually works in the film's favor, is quite enjoyable. But there is a character like this one, like L337, and Phoebe Waller Bridge, who gives her sort of yammery performance, as you'd know from Fleabag, that uh, sort of gets lost in the in the jumble of it all.
1: There's so many stars in this film and nobody has a lot of time to shine, mm-hmm. apart from Alden, who I think is great and I feel sorry for him that for months and months he's been dogged by these rumours that he's a terrible actor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because he's, he, he I don't think he is. I think he does a really good um, performance as Han Solo. But also, like Paul Bettany in this as well is acting in a completely different movie from everyone else. And I was very much here for it. I very much enjoyed his performance, mm-hmm. but... The stakes are so low in this film. The bad guys aren't just like approximations of bad guys. Like Mm -hmm. bad Star Wars fan fiction is what I would describe this film as. Oh, (laughs) yikes.
2: There's a lot of that out there.
0: I, I (laughs) I would strongly encourage people to go and check out Francis Ford Coppola's Tetro.
2: Oh really? Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah. From I think 2009 or 10, when when Alden Ehrenreich was is essentially his breakthrough role, mm-hmm. and yeah, he's he's amazing in that movie, playing alongside Vincent Gallo, and we put the film on the cover at the time and, and right. interviewed Alden, and and he seemed like he was this poised for megastardom, mm-hmm. you know, young Leonardo DiCaprio kind of guy hasn't quite happened for him. His career's been a bit stop-start, and mm-hmm. if this is to be the sort of launch pad for bigger and better things, you just wonder what else he could do. Like, is he going to now be sort of typecast in these kind of roles? Mm. I don't know. Tetro for me, is like a very underrated film, certainly in, in Coppola's late career, but it's amazing, like, breakthrough performance.
2: Well, he's also the best thing in Hail Caesar, the Coen brothers' sort of mixed bag old Hollywood comedy yeah. Thing which from a is couple of years ago. Funny
1: because in that film, like the whole thing is he can't act. Exactly,
2: yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I interviewed him for that and he seemed like such a cine literate, ambitious, kind of thoughtful guy and he just hasn't connected yet.
1: There's a really good interview with him doing the rounds at the moment. I can't remember which outlet it was. Uh, it was a profile, maybe Vogue or someone mm-hmm. like that. It, really, really good, really insightful. Uh, and he's only 27, this guy, you know, he's okay. got like a lot of time, I think, to mature as an actor. And at 27, to have worked with the Coen brothers and Yes, Woody Allen and and Ron Francis- Howard and, and Coppola. Like He's got a lot behind him already. If there's one takeaway from this film, I'm excited to see what he does next.
2: OK, so we're all broadly positive on old and era, right? Yeah. <laughs> but how do we feel about the film as a whole? Do you want to, put, do you want to throw some scores at it, Adam? Yeah, so I, I reviewed, I did this
0: last review for this. I think I gave it 3-2-2. Um, and purely the twos, I think, were just for, you know, not really trying anything new. It just feels like a very lazy film. Mm-hmm.
2: Hannah?
1: It's threes across the board. I've had worse times at the cinema. Uh, The one thing I will say is I'm impressed at them being able to make a Star Wars movie boring. Even the action scenes I came out and I was just like, well, they all looked exactly the same. And there were a lot of action scenes. But yeah.
0: There's one amazing early action scene on a train. Mm -hmm. And it it is a throwback to, (coughs) I think, like really old kind of Western, like train robbery Westerns but the twist is that it's this train is like uh, it's like this kind of sidewinding mm-hmm. um it's it's basically going around a mountain and i think that's just a really really ambitious well put together set piece yeah. nothing else really follows that i was mm-hmm.
1: getting major snow piercer vibes from that which maybe like yeah really shot really in the dolomites yeah, yeah. Um,
2: that whole first half of the film is what i enjoyed the most where it Thought it was a space western. You'd have Woody Harrelson's character who's wearing a, a long duster, he spins his <laughs> guns on his forefinger and everything. But then halfway through, they just forget all that. You have the campfire scenes. Oh, and... campfire yeah. scenes, exactly. Yeah. I'd say 332 for me. It is enjoyable, you can't deny that. But this is the first of these movies that's just come out and it's just another movie. And that is but something that I'm fighting, getting angry about. <laughs>
0: there's, there's a wider issue here, I think, that, that Lucasfilm Disney now. Have to address, which is that these movies don't feel like event movies anymore. No. Like a Star no. Wars movie rolls along, and this definitely feels like it's plugging a gap between episodes. What is it, eight and nine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and
1: nine's next Christmas. Yeah, so it's a long I time to wait. This does feel like yeah. they've just had to throw something out.
2: But I suppose that it's they need to do what Marvel are doing, where they can deliver an Avengers every couple of years, and then there'll be an Ant Man and the Wasp or something that's a smaller scale but film. Do
1: they? Do they need to do that? They're you know they they're Star Wars and. All this talk at the moment of a, a Luke Skywalker prequel I think is the most depressing thing ever. Mm-hmm. We had a Luke Skywalker film. It was called Star Wars. Yeah, the
2: whole point was he, he lived a very boring life. <laughs>
1: yeah, and he's 17 when we meet him in Star Wars. What's this film going to be about? Just, like, him as a baby? I, I mean, <laughs> I would be happy now if they don't make any more of these weird prequels.
0: I would be quite up for a Leia prequel origin story mm-hmm. with Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things. Ooh. Yeah, that's the
1: only one I'll accept. And that's I good think. casting, actually. Yeah.
0: But yeah, no interest in a, in a Lando spin-off now.
2: As somebody who read the comics, read the books growing up, I know there's this huge universe out there that you can play around in. the thousands of years in the past, thousands of years in the future of what we've seen on the movies, and people should go and play in those waters. But
0: that's what's great about Marvel now. I mean, not to give them too much credit, but they've laid the foundations over however many movies with the kind of A-list cast mm-hmm. from the comics. And now we're getting films like Black Panther, who, who would have really cared about a Black Panther movie mm-hmm. five years ago, yeah. ten years ago. So they are doing that now. They're, they're populating that world and exploring new, new areas.
2: Exactly. So maybe let's see how the future goes for Star Wars. <laughs> Although, talking of stars, we have a bit of reader mail this week that we want to dedicate a bit of time to. I'll read this out. It's from Jay Yeomans. I enjoy the podcast, but I have an issue with how cheaply your reviewers give out five stars. Infinity War, for example, as a movie it's fine, but it's not a five out of five movie. Coin by your Name, although a much very different kind of movie, is a masterpiece and very much a five-star one. The conversation, come and see Blue Velvet, Raging Bull, the Shining, all five-star movies. You can't really say that this Marvel Popcorn movie is anywhere near as good as these. Step back from your excitement a little, otherwise you muddy the waters. Thanks. So I think we have someone around this table that gave Infinity War five stars, right? Or- I
1: didn't give it five stars. Oh, you did. I okay. gave it four stars. Mm-hmm. So that is what I would like to say <laughs> to Jay Humans. <laughs> I do take issue with the idea that there's a correct way to score films, and mm-hmm. that's why it's great at Low White Lies because we do give a film three scores. So we have anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. So that means you have more sort of time to think about a film critically and how, you know, you can have a film that is a one in anticipation mm-hmm. that becomes a, a four in enjoyment. And I think also that the, these are all amazing five-star films that Jay's picked, but they're mm-hmm. all, apart from Calling By Your Name, they're all quite old films. Mm-hmm. So there is this idea that a film has to wait to be called a masterpiece, which again, I think is a bit prescriptive and a yeah. bit, I don't know. I think there are five-star blockbusters out there. hmm and I think you know you wouldn't look at the original Star Wars and go, "Oh, well, that can't be a five-star film because it's a it's it's popcorn." So yeah, I don't know. I think I think a lot of people do dole out five stars too easily, but I don't. I think mean, if, if we look at the number of films that we give five stars to, it's very very rare.
0: Well, we're going to be talking about one in in a bit, in hopefully. A bit, yeah. But I mean, the only point I would make is that I think this stems from the kind of review aggregation, Rotten Tomatoes culture, that mm-hmm. everything. Everything is sort of measured against something else, mm. so you can 't just give five stars to something in isolation. it has to be somehow charted against all the all the canon like the great works of cinema like we 're not saying that Infinity War is as good as Citizen Kane by giving it five stars mm-hmm. um, and I think that 's something that people often get a bit hung up on and mm. and frankly, I think scoring movies is quite an arbitrary, obviously very subjective process anyway, so read the reviews. Take the score with a pinch of salt, go and see it, form your own opinion. You're not right or wrong. So
2: It's just a way of putting almost a, just a capper on, yeah. on a review. The review is what often carries actual weight and thoughts and so on. It's interesting, Hannah, when you say that it's mostly old movies that get these five-star accolades because sometimes I feel when a film first comes out on first viewing, particularly the film we're going to talk about shortly, I find it hard to even understand how I feel about a film on first glance. I want to sit with it for sometimes years, watch it multiple times before I know whether it's in that all-time greatest, highest upper echelons of cinema. I looked at Letterboxd, we've mentioned Mm Letterboxd before, um, my personal Letterboxd count and looking at the five-star films there, Do the Right Thing, Ghostbusters, (laughs) Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Far From Heaven, My Neighbour Totoro, all films that I've sat with over many years, many viewings, and now feel confident, yes, that is going to be in my (laughs) Mount Rushmore of movies.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. I was thinking back to the BFI occasionally published their, or Sight and Sound published mm. their 100 Greatest Films of All Time. And mm-hmm. there was uh, the last <clears> one, which I think was a few years ago now, I think Vertigo knocked Citizen Kane off the top spot. But what was interesting about that list was that I think the only film from the current century was Mulholland Drive. Yes, yeah. Which a lot of people voted for, and I think placed quite highly in the end. But I thought it was quite interesting, quite telling that, even at that point, there's this idea that there has to be some distance from a film before it can actually, you know, play with the with the big boys. Mm-hmm.
2: And this might be a good point, actually, Adam, to mention that Little White Lies has just done their spin a very distinctive spin on the great movies in the latest issue. with taking a different tack with a different brief. Issue 75, do you want to mention that now?
0: Yeah, so we, for our 75th issue, um, anniversary issue, we've basically gone slightly different direction with it. It's more of a concept issue centred around a question, which is can movies save the world? Mm-hmm. And to answer this, we've essentially set a brief, setting a fictional scenario where you've got a cinema filled with heads of industry, CEOs, politicians—basically the most influential people in the world—and you, to this captive audience, you can screen one one movie. Uh, and we've asked people to pick a movie and explain their choice. And uh, yeah, we've got some really interesting contributions mm. in there from our usual wheelhouse of journalists um, contributors. There's also filmmakers, uh, a few politicians, mm-hmm. people from outside of of the film industry as well. So yeah, available in all good magazine shops now.
2: Any highlights from the from the magazine, Hannah, to mention?
1: Ella Donald picked Magic Mike XXL, which I think is an inspired pick. Also worth shouting out, I'm Manuela Lausich and Adam Neyman's great essay on They Came Together. I think it's a really nice way of looking at film as something other than five stars across the board. It, mm-hmm. It's, you know, these are the films that speak to people and inspire people or that people hate and want to punish people with. And it's, yeah, it's if you want to discover some new films and kind of revisit some classics, it's, it's a really nice issue.
2: It was such a good thought experiment as a writer or a critic who very rarely thinks in that concept way about films. And, and actually the film I picked has, has some renewed relevance because it's Hirokazu Kurada's afterlife and he just won the Palme d'Or at Cannes last week for his new film Shoplifters so I think my choice might be one of the best yeah. in the magazine <laughs> maybe
0: but yeah if any listeners want to add their own into the mix then please do get in touch, the sure. usual email address
2: email address movies at com and LW Lies on twitter um, thank you Jay, I hope that addresses the five-star question for you there. Um, And speaking of five stars, we're going to talk about a film that did get five stars in the magazine. It's Lucretia Martel's Zama. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So, Zama. This is the new film from Lucretia Martel, the Argentinian filmmaker whose last film was The Headless Woman. It's based on the novel by Antonio Di Benedetto, following a low-level magistrate, Don Diego de Zama, uh, in 18th century uh, Latin America, who's awaiting his transfer to Buenos Aires and being prevented at every turn by fate. I only saw this film last night, and it's quite a hypnotic, hazy, uh, head mess of a movie. Adam, you saw this a bit further ago. Mm -hmm. Could you chop through the weeds and tell us something about it?
0: Yeah, so it was actually in uh, the LFF last year if anyone Mm. managed to catch it there but it's this very impressionistic very kind of moody film the central character is almost wading through this purgatory state and all the while you have these indigenous people these Indians as they refer to them just kind of carrying on and it's sort of a tale of like sexual frustration. Hmm. There's an early scene where he's um, he's essentially spying on some uh, native women um and are they're, they're, they're sort of preparing for a sort of ceremonial that they're, they're covering themselves in like mud. And yeah, he he sort of just drifts through this movie. He's quite a kind of pathetic character. Mm-hmm. A Really really amazing performance. I've not read the book, but by all accounts it's I mean David Jenkins in uh, in his review calls it one of the great cinematic achievements of the decade. Right, well, yes, yeah. And I think that's based on the fact as well that the book is so dense mm-hmm. and it's told from this very insular kind of point of view there's a lot of like inner monologuing and I think the way she translates that specifically is, is quite extraordinary
2: And the actor, Daniel Jimenez Cacho he's such a handsome masculine looking man and at the beginning you see him in his sort of red jacket and his tri-pointed hats, surveying the landscape and then over two hours you just see him be chipped away and chipped away.
0: He is, but he's kind of gone to seed a bit and Mm -hmm. he's a bit, you know, his face is sagging and his hair is is sort of thinning and he looks like this very, basically he looks like he's been worn down, beaten down by years of this this kind of colonial misadventure that he's been
2: on. Mm Mm-hmm. Hannah, have you seen Martel's films before this, The Headless Woman? That was ten years ago, I think, that came out.
1: No, I haven't. I um, actually bought a copy of The Headless Woman on DVD last week with the Uh intention of watching it before Zama, but time constraints meant I didn't get around to it. But having seen Zama, I will definitely be seeking out the rest of her filmography. I went into this. The only thing I had to go on was the rave reviews it got Mm -hmm. at uh, LFF and also... From David, and reading a really great interview, which is in our new issue mm. with uh, Lucas by Matt Thrift, which I would again like it. She's the most eloquent and insightful filmmaker I've read an issue with in quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And I was, yeah, really pleasantly surprised. I won't see us at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, which <laughs> is maybe not the best time to see this film. But it is, you sort of are hypnotized by it and you come out in a sort of like, yeah, a, a dream state. Just, it's so lush, the film, and the, the landscapes are so, you can feel the heat sort of radiating off them. Nothing is left a chance in this film. Everything is has a thought and a detail. Mm-hmm. And we were talking beforehand about the soundtrack, which I think needs a definite shout so,
2: out. So, yeah, this soundtrack by, what's they called? Uh, Los Indios Tabajares? this Brazilian guitar duo, I believe, from the 1950s and 60s, this sort of soft, almost surf rock, easy listening music, which is so anachronistic. Mm. But you said, Hannah, that... um Lucretia Martel chose that music because it was recorded at the same time as the book was written. So even though it's two hundred years out of step with the content of the narrative, it was somehow appropriate.
1: Yeah, she uh, there's a really good into in film comment with her. All the press for this movie is great. She's very, very interesting to read, interviews with. But yeah, she was saying that she wanted to kind of use that music, knowing that the author of the book, Antonio Di Benedetto. Yeah. I hope that's right. Um, <laughs> Would have probably been aware of this uh, band, who were very popular at the time. And I, listening to the music, I'm sure I've heard it before mm-hmm. as well. And she thought that was really interesting, kind of throwing back to that and the yeah, the anachronistic element of the sound against this 18th century setting. Mm-hmm. like It almost feels like it's all in his head, which I think is really interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah, we seem to be focusing on uh, Lucretia Martel as, as a personality, as through the film and in interviews and she did the q and A. I I went to see a preview at the BFI last night and in her introduction, she um, likened the film to being given a strange drink. And it says, you don't ask what the drink is, you just drink it and see what happens. Just go along with it. <laughs> and then later in the Q&A, she said, it's not the sort of film you'd recommend to your neighbour unless you wanted to ruin their life.
0: <laughs> wow. I, I think we should, we should say that it's quite a kind of slow movie mm-hmm. and quite meditative. And you, and you sit there and just when you think you're settled into it, something kind of jolts you a bit. Like there's there's a scene where he walks into a room and he's sort of having a conversation with one of his superiors. And in the background, you just see this llama <laughs> en- enter the room and kind of, he sort of circles it and then, and then leaves and the llama spins and leaves as well behind him. And it's just this really strange, beautiful moment. It, there's this, it touches of like magical realism in the film. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, it has this kind of fever dream quality. You yeah. never know what kind of images you're going to, be surprised by next and it's yeah i just think it's an amazing achievement
2: it's such an ethereal film that we're you know we're throwing a lot of kind of adjectives and <laughs> moods, moods around but for me not to undermine the film by Comparing it to other movies, but it reminded me a lot of Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man, mm. his sort of um, weird psychedelic western black and white Johnny Depp out in the the Wild West losing his mind slowly. And it's so, it has a similar vibe to that, at least the atmosphere of surreal tension, yeah. the degradation of humanity in a landscape that they were never meant to be there. And that's this sort of faint thread of anti-imperialism post-colonialism i guess that runs mm. through the film
0: yeah it reminded me a bit of a more recent film by Lissandro Alonso called Huaja, mm-hmm. which has got Vigo Mortensen as a sort of jaded conquistador and and it's it's got this same sort of saturated slow burn quality to it
2: yeah the colours in this film are amazing. Mm. She, I think this is her first film on digital, and you can just see that she's really playing with the colour grading and the cinematography. Yeah. that's possible there are particular shots where reds or greens just pop out. And this is a film I really would recommend seeing in a cinema if you can, because the sound design—not just the music, but just this sort of cacophony of cicadas yeah, and yeah. In, in, in the background—just really add to something. Do we all like this film? Or are we all on board with it? Yeah, should we do scores? We just do some scores. Hannah, you go first.
0: I
1: think it's. A 455 for me the more i think ah. about the film the more excited i am by it and the more i want to revisit it i mm-hmm. think there's some really interesting uh, visuals and there's a really lovely my favorite kind of recurring motif is they're talking about spider wasps mm-hmm. spider wasps are fascinating because they lay their eggs inside live spiders mm-hmm. and then the eggs hatch and they eat the spider alive and now this is kind of a whole metaphor for the character of zama but also imperialism as well yeah. as a concept and um, I don't know if that's from the book or if that's something that Martel was adding. There's so much to unpack and there's so much detail. It's just a really yeah, an incredible achievement.
0: Adam. I would go 445 mm. and it's a film I really feel like I need to revisit sometime soon to, to sort of fully understand and appreciate it.
2: I think I'm 444 four, four, but as I said I wanted to see I, I saw this literally 12 hours ago i want to sit on it a bit longer maybe see it again and maybe that'll go up to a five and also i want to read the book you know? yeah although lucretia in the in the q a last night did say read the book definitely but wait a year or two so it doesn't ruin the film <laughs> right in retrospect it's
1: only recently been translated into english mm-hmm. i was reading that apparently when it was first written it was immediately translated into german but it's only in the past couple of years they've Finally made the leap into English, which I think is interesting.
2: I think it's New York Review Books Press. Yes, I've got, it a, is. got a copy yeah. out there. So that was Zama. What are we looking forward to next week, Adam?
0: Well, uh, next week, hopefully, we're going to be covering a bit of Jurassic World.
2: Oh, The Fallen Kingdom
0: potentially. And there's a documentary out about Alexander McQueen as well, the okay. late fashion designer, which is supposed to be very good.
2: And there's the film club next week. We didn't have one this week. Yeah,
0: so obviously getting back into the swing of things post can. so we thought we'd throw ahead to next week. Speaking of a good movie set in Outer Space, there's a film called Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which is turns 30 years old. You may You may have heard of it, you may not. Uh, it's on Netflix so please give it a while I think it's widely available beyond that but yeah it's this cult film by this trio of siblings called the Chiodo brothers okay they've not made a film since oh really yeah 1988 this came out Um, I think they've they've gone on to do other things directing commercials and writing other movies basically but yeah it's a, by all accounts quite a, a, a weird one so
2: killer clowns from outer space yep does exactly what it says on the tin i, I, yep. I think the clue is in the
0: name <laughs>
2: it was a night like any other night then something happened you see that something different it's shooting star why here? Why now? Why clowns? Well, that's uh, that's about it. Let's get watching Kill Clowns from Outer Space and we'll be back with Jurassic World and McQueen next week. Thank you for joining me today, uh, Woodhead and Woodward, crime busters of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7Digital production.